Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we're covering one of my favorite topics. Not about we. She's just pretty much going to be talking the whole time. I don't know about that because the second part of my research, there's like nothing there was very, very little on any of the information on it, but the beginning part might be a good at least 15, 20 minutes. That's it? Uh, for me, that's quite a bit, but I mean, I could go into way more detail if you want, so don't you worry. I've got the history. I mean, I guess if yours is about 20 minutes, mine's about 20 minutes, that's about the standard length of an episode, but feel free to add more. I mean, oh, okay. The- our biowarfare episode ended up being almost an hour and a half, and that's after editing. Okay. <laughs> I is not too worried about this. <laughs> but but what are we talking about? What is this awesome favorite topic of yours? I mean, it's the Rosetta Stone, of course. Oh, rose quartz? Nifty. Oh, wait. Not rose stone. Rosetta Stone. Kind of. Yes, Rosetta, and not the Rosetta Stone, the language program either. (laughs) The actual physical Rosetta Stone. But before we get into that, if you do like this episode and our topics, uh, please leave us a rate and review. You can do that. We'd love to see what you have to say, hear your thoughts, and let us know what you think about our episodes and topics. Also, you can contact us at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. Yay! Yeah, that's our email. You want to recommend a topic, you want to give us an idea, you want to tell us how you feel about something and you don't want to do it on a post, shoot us an email. We're, we're here to listen. I was trying to figure out how to word this. I know a bunch of your coworkers listen to the show. <laughs> like like a lot a lot i i still don't know if that's the uh the amount of increase though that we've had in our audience size in the last week or so but regardless thank you to everyone for listening uh our audience size has has grown more in the last two weeks and i think in the last month or so <laughs> we we by the time this episode airs I would say we're closing on almost 3,000 plays and less than two years, which for us is a pretty big milestone. And I was not expecting to hit those numbers until the anniversary in August. Woot, woot. So thank you for everyone. And I'm not sure, this is going out the last week of May. We're recording it two weeks or so ahead. But I believe we would have already, or this week, are posting something, some information about an upcoming live, or at least we're having an upcoming live, I think maybe next month in June is a plan. So I'm going to be posting on our Instagram page, which was going to be the next thing. So we have an Instagram and Facebook, History Explains It All underscore podcast, where I will be posting on both pages a post about when you guys want to do an Instagram live, because we want days and times that work out for you that we can work around. So 
when that should come out, that'll come out at the end of May. I'll probably do it uh, the Sunday before this episode comes out, which this comes out the 26th, I believe. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I'll be posting it on the 22nd, the same day I post about a today in history or in archaeology in the news. Yeah, but if, if you hear this on the 26th or by the end of the month, feel, still feel free to comment on the socials about what day and time work best for you to participate in a live so we can get as many people in and have, chatting up and meeting as much as possible. Oh yeah, post for as long as you want. Comment for as long as you want. It gives us time to like actually plan out and work around your guys' schedule so that we can have a live with y'all. Yep, yep, yep. So look forward to that. Let's anything, jump right in, shall we? <laughs> I was like, anything else before you want to start digging up the past there? I don't know. I'm too excited to get into the topic. Go right ahead. I'll leave you to it. So the Rosetta Stone's origins. <laughs> the origins of the Rosetta Stone is it was written in 196 BCE. This is during the Ptolemaic era. If you don't know anything about the Ptolemaic era, I'm just gonna give you a little excerpt right now, real quick. Egypt was run, uh, I say run, but I should mean taken over around 323 BCE from Persia. It was Persian controlled at the time. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? 323? You mean it wasn't taken over by Alexander? Or was this after? I mean, 332. I just like flipped the three. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. It was taken over in 332, not 323, from Persia. 323 is when Alexander died. Woo, my brain. So in 332, Alexander the Great, who is, by the way, Macedonian, was conquering the known world. And in 332 is when he conquered Egypt from, or wrestled Egypt from Persia at the time. And he died less than 10 years later. Well, when he died, as far as I know, he didn't really have any heirs. No, that's what I thought. I was like, I don't think he had at least none that he named saying they were his heirs. But he was Macedonian Greek or Greco, Macedonian. And his generals were the ones to inherit his land. He split it up. And among them, the Ptolemies were the ones to inherit Egypt from Alexander. And the first Ptolemy to rule Egypt was Ptolemy I Soter. And it lasted for 300 years almost because Cleopatra VII, or the infamous slash famous Cleopatra, was the last Ptolemy and she died around 30 BC. So imagine this, around in the years 300 BCE to the year 30 BCE, 
the Ptolemies ruled Egypt. Now, remember, they're Greco-Macedonian. They are not Egyptian themselves. Just to also give you a little bit of extra info, Ptolemy, Ptolemy Soter, or the first, first Ptolemy to rule Egypt, really, when he became pharaoh slash king of Egypt, he didn't overturn much of anything pertaining to religion, belief systems. He only tried to better like the economic situation and he didn't, he kind of combined the gods of Greco-Macedonia and Egypt. That's why places like Rome and parts of Greece and parts of Egypt have temples to Zeus and temples to Cleopatra. No, I was about to say Cleopatra, but I mean Isis. Isis are in those areas. I think it's a bit of, um, it's a bit of mixing on that. I think what maybe the first Ptolemy also did in sort of going back to Alexander's conglomeration, I guess you could say, or I can't think of the right word, but his thing was, you know, I, I'm going to rule, but keep doing what you're doing. You're, you guys are just my subjects, but I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. Just live your life. But Roman conquerors were kind of like that as well, too, which we found out much later on, uh, because they would do the same thing. They would conquer land. Now, they had a little more loyalty. Like, you, you know, you don't have to always worship our gods, but you have to be loyal to the you know mother rome but that's why they incorporated a bunch of different religions within rome itself as well too oh yeah rome absolutely but when it came to the ptolemies they were more of let's just kind of blend everything now ptolemy the first is probably the one that started that idea did i think it like became fully implemented during his reign, as far as I know, I don't think it did. It could take hundreds of years and things like that to actually blend that kind of life. But the Ptolemies did really try to follow the system pertaining to Egyptian beliefs. For example, if we just talk about royal lineage, it wasn't necessary in Greco-Macedonian life to marry your sibling to keep the line pure. It was, however, necessary to do that in Egyptian ruling because of the Osiris myth. Hence, Osiris married his sister Isis, so she was his sister wife. And Set also married their other sister, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Nephthys, that's it. For some reason, I wanted to say Nechbet, and I knew that was wrong. Nechbet is a completely different goddess. So it was definitely one of the things they adopted. And they also, because if we just look at Cleopatra's, the seventh lineage in history, she married both of her brothers. When one died, she was married to one. And when he died, she married the other one because that's what you did in order to keep the lineage pure. You were 
chosen by the gods to rule the land of Egypt. Hence, you married your sibling. So they, they did adopt some things and they didn't adopt other things. So just depends. But by this point, this is Ptolemy V, 196 BCE. We're still about 130 years away from the end of the Ptolemaic era. And Ptolemy V is also, so Ptolemy I was Ptolemy I Soter. Ptolemy V is Ptolemy uh, V Epiphanes. Sounds like a very Greek Macedonian name to me. Not very Egyptian. When I think Egyptian, I think of Seti, Ramses, Tutankhamun. <laughs> but that's me. During Ptolemy V's official coronation, and I'll get into why I say official coronation in a minute, an edict was inscribed on a stele, and that stele actually ended up going around Egypt, basically down the Nile and back up the Nile. And of course, the coronation took place in Memphis, which is basically present-day Cairo. And the edict itself is known, what is inscribed on the Rosetta Stone. And this is known as the Memphis Decree. They're so original with their names. <laughs> this isn't the only Memphis Decree. This is just the most famous Memphis Decree. <laughs> There's several others of different actual edicts, by the way. They're just called the Memphis Decree, most likely because they were written and carved on the stele in Memphis. Is that like kind of the Treaty of Paris, but we don't know which one because there's so freaking many of them? Yep, basically. So the decree, the decree, the decree was inscribed on the stele in 196. He was 13 years old. However, Ptolemy V had already been ruling in name since he was a young kid. Because, you know, 13 years old ain't that young. But his father was not well-loved. He, how do, I, how do I put this? He was so hated, he was assassinated? He wasn't really, well, I don't think he was assassinated. That's what I read, but maybe I missed it. Let me double check my information in one second. He wasn't assassinated. He was defeated in battle, actually. He was so weak in decisions. Basically, he's the one that kind of ushered in the Ptolemaic era's beginning of the, their decline. So he's Henry the Sixth. Kind of. Yeah. If you want to think of it that way. He wasn't known for having strength and character or any of that. His ministers kind of ruled over him. They ruled over his son for a period of time, but I'll get into that in a second. And, uh, well, let, let's just say uh, his at the beginning of his reign, um, his mother was murdered. Oh, okay. I, th I knew somebody was murdered. I guess it was his mom. Okay, I got that confused. Yeah, it was his mom. And 
basically his reign ended up being terrible and well let's just say a rebellion occurred for a period of time a non-Ptolemaic person ruled because his father was defeated in battle <laughs> by a priest by the way mm-hmm. I mean what's his face from the mummy it was pretty powerful and, and in actual life that that actual person was also pretty powerful yeah priests back in particularly in ancient egypt had a lot of power yes yes they did they still they they always held power because they're the ones that speak to the gods basically his father was killed in battle ptolemy the fifth came to the throne as a very very young kid and was basically his advisors were the ones ruling put it that way and in 196 when he was 13 rebellions that have been going on throughout Egypt since his father's era officially ended Ptolemies were back on the throne and therefore there was a official coronation when he was 13 in 196 BCE so Basically, the Rosetta Stone inscription talks about the siege of Lycopolis, basically putting down the revolt. But what it really discusses in detail from what we have left, so remember the Rosetta Stone is not whole. It's just a part of what was the full decree. So from what we can tell, it discusses negotiations that occurred between the Ptolemies and the priests. And I'll read a couple of excerpts from them and we can talk about it because details. It describes Ptolemy V, by the way, I'm talking about the son, not the father who failed at being a pharaoh. But Ptolemy V is being a great ruler he was kind and he knew what he was doing and that he would be supportive of the priests and the temples especially with things like money because you know when when everyone else is pulling the strings it's really whatever they say but this also meant that the religious administration which as melissa and i have said holds quite a bit of power they were the ones supporting the king they were the ones that supported ptolemy v becoming and being pharaoh and that support during a time of tumultuous times such as when the rebellions were occurring it's good to have support from the religious factor because the religious faction is the one is an extremely influential group of people the god they're the ones who speak to the gods they're the ones who can can hear the gods they're the ones that make sacrifices to the gods so on and so forth right so if you have the religious backing 
you're doing pretty damn good. You've, you've gone from like, I don't know, 25% support to maybe 65% support. I'm pulling out numbers. This isn't accurate, by the way. I mean, you did spend your whole life preparing for the afterlife in the field fields of Elysium or Duat, as they call it in ancient Egypt. So this whole decree is written in three different languages, as we know, hieroglyphics, demotic, and ancient Greek. But Melissa, do you know why it's written in three different languages? Oh, I do. Oh, good. Yeah, because I did the research. Yeah, I know. Would you like to tell the listeners? I am going to because oh. darn you. <laughs> I, did, I thought you'd want to say it. I didn't want to spoil it. Of course. Well, as we were talking about earlier, there were several different cultures in Egypt at the time. Egypt's one a port of trade because of the Nile Delta and Alexandria at the time. You have, of, like we said, Greco-Macedonian because of the Ptolemies. And then you have, of course, hieroglyphics because that's the language of ancient Egypt. And then, so the hieroglyphics is actually what's used by the royal family. But what's used by the common man or woman, basically the common people of ancient Egypt, was actually demotic. Hence, it's written in ancient Greek, demotic, and hieroglyphics. Also, at the time, even though so the, the, the royalty was using hieroglyphics, it was written in the people's language so they could read it. And it was also written in ancient Greek because not only was were the Ptolemies Greek and by by culture and birth and everything, but because they were ruling over Egypt, it was also the language of the administrations. Yes, all the documents were written in ancient Greek. Yes. So. The Rosetta Stone is a fragment. It's not the only fragment of the Memphis Decree because when the Memphis Decree was originally written, it was actually decreed in the decree to have it throughout Egypt. Well, you can't only have one stone throughout Egypt. It's just not possible. What? The stele can't be like in every place at once? No. <laughs> so there are a couple other stele that it was written on, which I will discuss later. So I'm going to read, I'm reading every bit of this text would be impossible because it would take 40 minutes just to read it before I even dissect it. For anyone that wants to read it, we have a link in the notes where you can go and read the transcribed into English version. Yes, I'll obviously give the one I'm reading off of. So just going, I'm kind of going to do probably a couple of sections here, but going into the first, which is 
completely about praise of Ptolemy five epiphanies. And behold, his majesty possessed a divine heart, which was beneficent towards the gods. And he hath given gold in large quantities and grain in large quantities to the temple. And he hath given many, very many lavish gifts in order to make Tom Mert, Egypt, prosperous and to make stable her advancement. Just taking that really small excerpt, it's talking about basically lavishing upon the temples money and grain, which in that time, food, rebellion going on, food is going to be an important commodity. Now, the question is, was he kind of bullied into giving up all this stuff to the temples? Or did he give it freely or a combination? Obviously, we don't have evidence of one or the other. We just know that he had the support of the priestly faction and he needed to keep that support. And the rebellion, which happened, he obviously took prisoners. That's what you do. You take prisoners against those who are against you as a ruler if you win. You win the war, you win the battle, whatever you want to call it in this sense. And so this excerpt is talking about his benevolence, his forgiveness, his willingness to give a second opportunity kind of wording is what's going on here. And quote, and he hath forgiven the prisoners who were in prison and, and ordered that everyone among them should be released from the punishment which he had to undergo. And his majesty made an order saying, in respect of the things which are to be given to the gods and the money and the grain which are to be given to the temples each year and all things which are to be given to the gods from the vineyards and from the corn lands of the gnome, all the things which were then due under the majesty of his holy father shall be allowed to remain in their amounts to them as they were then. I'm going to end the quote here because there's no such thing as actual punctuation in hieroglyphics or anything like that. So there's no period. So I'm not going to be able to be like, oh, full sentence, stop. Ancient Greek and Rome, or ancient Greek and Latin do that too. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. <laughs> It's a one long run-on sentence. I don't know if you noticed this, Melissa, in this quote that I just said, but you notice that his benevolence as a ruler is mentioned very minutely. And then it quickly goes back into being about the priests. Yep, I noticed that. Because it's not about the Pharaoh. It's about how much money you can give to your religion. Basically, and it's not about him being a good Pharaoh in this case. It's about him having the backing support. It's about him doing as he's told, basically. 
that's what that sounds like to me, but that's again, a translation of what I'm reading. Okay, and here's kind of where it's going to talk about him, him by him, I mean, Pharaoh Ptolemy. Okay, quote, in a statue of the king of the south and north, Ptolemy, ever living, beloved of Ptah, the God who maketh himself manifest, the Lord of beauties, shall be set up in every temple in the most prominent place, and it shall be called by his name, Ptolemy, the savior of Egypt, the interpretation of which is Ptolemy, the victorious one. All the temples which are called by his name, an adoration shall be paid unto these statues three times a day and every rite and ceremony which it is proper to perform before them shall be performed. To me, in this edict, this is stating, here's our support. You should support him too. Here's our, the priestly support, and, and you, the people, should support Ptolemy as well. Basically, kind of don't rebel against him. Praise him because he's giving us money and grain what that sounds like again i'm only taking a few excerpts here but if you want to read the whole thing i'll put this we'll put this up for you to link link to so this is now talking about the stele itself and the decree being throughout egypt quote and behold, it shall be in the hands of those who live in the country and those who desire it to establish a copy of the shrine of the God who maketh himself manifest, whose deeds are beautiful and set it up in their houses. And they shall be at liberty to keep festivals and make rejoicings before it each month. In each year, and in order to make those who are in Egypt to know, that this decree shall be inscribed upon a stella of hard stone in the writing of the word of the gods, king of the south and north, Ptolemy, ever living, beloved of Ptah, the God who maketh himself manifest, whose deeds are beautiful. So that's the end of the translation. And it's making it very clear that this is going to be throughout the country and all the people will follow it. It talks about why it's written in three different languages and that it was done specifically on purpose. It wasn't, they didn't want to, it sounds to me like they didn't want to exclude anyone. They wanted everyone to know this decree and to follow it. And that is the origins of the Rosetta Stone. I mean, the discovery was important, but I guess the decree itself was also quite important. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Let's not read the decree next time. Well, speaking of discovery, let's get into that. One of my favorite parts. <laughs> it's funny because the entire, so we, we, we split this up so she could talk about the decree in ancient Egypt because that's totally her nerd out. And then I was like, well, I get the discovery. He was like, huh, I also get to talk about Napoleon. One of your other nerd outs. <laughs> Darn you. But that's okay. I can live with that on this one because 
I might interject a few times and you might have to deal with it. I mean, to be fair, Napoleon doesn't really make too much of a, he's not very pronounced within the discovery and transcriptions. He makes a very of little coat. appearance in any of this hmm? other than he was there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was so focused on his campaign at the time that this discovery was minute to him. Speaking of Napoleon, during the very late, very like 1797, 1798, into the very early 1800s, as in 1802 to 1804, Napoleon was on his big quest to conquer as much territory towards the east for France. Because it's Napoleon and he wanted France to become the new Roman Empire. Because that's Napoleon. Well, I mean, he did call himself emperor, not king. Well, in 1799, he and his troops were trying to dominate the Mediterranean lands when they found themselves marching through Egypt. And this was the Egyptian campaign. And there are different stories of how the Rosetta Stone was specifically found, but in every version, it was found by accident that much we can't specifically say so the main account that's been passed around is that on july 15th 1799 french soldiers were building defenses at nearby fort julian which is a couple miles city a couple miles north of the city of rosetta which now is called the city of rashid and they were under the command of colonel de Hapul, and while they were strengthening their their walls for the fort, Lieutenant Pierre-Francois Bouchard spotted a slab and a portion of the wall that they were working on. And upon a closer inspection, Bouchard noticed that there were several inscriptions on it and reported it to his command, de Hapul. And they both quickly realized the significance of it because it's not just, it doesn't just have Egyptian hieroglyphics on it. It's in three different languages. So you know it's very important because you, we rarely ever find stones with three different cross languages on it. It's very unusual, particularly for ancient Egypt. I don't think it was written. Many of them are written in more than two languages. I think it was more, again, for the upper class most of the time. So your hieroglyphics and your Greek majorly. Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of decrees written in Demotic, but I could be wrong. I mean, when I it haven't comes heard of many. To Egyptology as a whole, when people think about ancient Egypt and they think of Egyptian languages, they think hieroglyphs, mostly because you're going to find them in all of the royalty temples. But I don't even, if you, see, you ask just a general person off the street and go, do you know what the Demotic language of Egyptian is? They go, I didn't. First of all, they'll probably think you said demonic language of the ancient Egyptians, but I don't, I'm sure most people off the street aren't going to be aware that there was a people's language. Yes, I don't think most people realize that hieroglyphs were really just for the upper class. Mm -hmm. People uh, like generals and people in the administration until the Ptolemies ruled and the priests, that was 
all just upper class. Most people couldn't read hieroglyphics. Mm -hmm. Which in of itself, they're very difficult anyway. And it's demotic with a T. I know that. I know I'm saying it for the people. Oh, okay. So that they don't think I'm saying demonic. <laughs> That's why I made the, the, the reference. If you ask a normal person on the street, they'll probably think you said demonic. <laughs> but it is just tick. Demotic tick. So like I said, both men realized the major significance of this slab of stone, which is not a small slab to begin with. And I'll get into that. It's massive. It's massive. And it's only part of it. Yeah. It's a broken piece of it. And imagine that going all the way down to what we consider the South, which was North Egypt, all the way back up to the Delta era area in Memphis, where Cairo is, which is North to us, but South Egypt. Well, it was, uh, maybe I understood it incorrectly when they said this shall be read throughout the country. It's not, I didn't, I'd never uh, viewed it as just this one stone would travel up and down. It probably did, but I took it also that they made replicas of the decree to have and various temples throughout the country. Was it, am I wrong in assuming that? I believe my understanding was that they said it would be traveling throughout the country as in it would physically go places. I wouldn't be surprised they've taken huge Egyptian god statues from one city to another. Hmm. That's fair. Huh. So after both Bouchard and Dahapul were like, wow, this is you know, something really, really, honestly, very important, especially since you barely, rarely ever find anything ancient Egyptian with ancient Greek on it, they immediately removed it from the wall and then sent the stone to the very newly founded Institut d'Egypte in, uh, in Cairo, which uh, uh, was founded by Napoleon. And actually shortly before returning to France, Napoleon himself would go to Cairo to the Institut and personally inspect the stone in late July of 1799. And then from there, the discovery made its way to the Courrier de l'Egypte, which was the official newspaper of the expedition, letting everyone know we found this really interesting, very significant, massive stone artifact. Massive is an understatement for this. Yeah. <laughs> this stele is just huge. So I, for anyone who's not familiar with the, the word stele, um, it's a massive stone with inscriptions on it, really, for the most part. If you think of an obelisk, but mm -hmm. just instead of multifaceted, like an a, or a pyramid or something, it's just like one side facing, but it's a massive stone with writing on it. And they're yeah, used throughout a variety of different cultures throughout the world. Oh, yeah. All you have to look at, look to is the Code of Hammurabi as another example. True, uh, but there was also over in Mesoamerica as well. And you, I'm sure you would have found them in the pre-Columbian uh, cultures of like Mochi and the Inca and- Yeah, I went for the more obvious famous one that I was thinking of, but yeah. Sorry, I studied Mesoamerican archeology. span I remember reading and looking at various stuff. <laughs> you studied Mesoamerican, I studied Egyptian and Middle Eastern, so. 
I immediately went to the code of Hammurabi and you went to South Central America. <laughs> of course, it's going to come out. But stele are basically not just stone stab slabs with in inscriptions. It can also, it, it's majorly to bear a commemorative or an edict or something like that. Something of import to have a memory of for the people to remember whichever person of import it's discussing. Right. Some of you might be wondering, well, okay, the French found it. And yet the stone resides in the British Museum. How did it get there? Well, there's a really easy answer to that. The British stole it. No, not, no, not quite, but almost. <laughs> I mean, literally not quite, but almost. Running joke. Sure. <laughs> Running joke. Most of what's in the British Museum has been stolen. Uh, you know, most of the items in the majority of museums have been stolen. Yeah, there, there's that too. There, there's a reason there's a lot of laws pertaining to artifacts being purchased or acquired by museums now. Especially when they're international. Yeah. Not long after the stone was discovered and sent to Cairo, Napoleon's still having his Eastern expansion and at about like 1800, 1801, the British come into Egypt and start claiming land there. The French are going, yeah, you know, no, we were here first. This is ours. <laughs> we claim this. You could go bugger off. <laughs> this is ours. <laughs> so obviously, and then, so the French and the English get into fights, which they always do. But I believe the Ottoman Empire was also tag teaming with the British against the French. Yeah, they, I mean, it's, it's France and England. Come on. It's basically the, of the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right, exactly. So even though technically the Ottomans and the British didn't get along too great, they got along because they hated the French more. <laughs> yeah. Or as um, one of my absolute favorite movies makes a, a pun and goes, the lesser of two weevils, but uh, I love that movie. <laughs> You got there. <laughs> when that registered in my brain, I couldn't contain the laughter. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> you just don't want to be on a on a on a Georgian sailing ship with biscuits full of weevils. But, but you know. <laughs> Sorry, if anyone's ever seen Master and Commander, you know where I was going with that. <laughs> I yeah, I know. I've seen it. Seen I've seen it, it on the which, books, on the soundtrack. Love Baccarini. You know, it's great. Well, also, weevils are just absolutely hated. Just fucking hated. I mean, do you want worms in your food? I don't think so. Exactly. So the lesser of two weevils, I totally got where you were going with that. <laughs> but I had to register it because I'm tired, lady. <laughs> I'm running on about five hours of sleep a night right now. So, so I'm a little bit slower on the registration of the jokes, but once I get it, I die. Well, as you can imagine, you got a tag team against the French. What happens to the French? They lose. What happens to Napoleon? He loses. But 
you know what i don't haven't mentioned it you know, I'm, okay i mentioned it before but we took off the very first pompeii episode which had the weird history about napoleon beating beating my bunnies and i know i know it mentioned something in there about when napoleon loses he loses big if you do want to hear it we've removed it but it hasn't been removed from itunes oh really yeah apple podcasts i say itunes because i'm used to them still being together but they're really not they haven't been in years but apple podcasts just i i don't think they take anything down no matter how many times you remove it oh okay so i guess it's still up it's oh. still technically up but only on the apple podcast so if you have an apple phone or a computer ipad whatever it is that you listen from that is a macintosh it it's there I mean, regardless, Napoleon, he wins big and he loses big. That's a good summation of Napoleon. And when he lost to the British, the Rosetta Stone very quickly, though there was quite a, a bunch of debate about it, it very quickly became the property of the British, specifically per the terms of the Treaty of Alexandria in 1802. And very quickly it was shipped off to england and arrived in portsmouth in around february of 1802 and i'll get into that now interestingly enough this oh, i mean interestingly not interestingly enough if you know anything about the late georgian early victorians they were massively into egyptology you can listen to our victorian uses for mummies episode yeah i mean that's one place to start yeah so it, it just, it, it once, not just because of the Rosetta Stone, but it was part of the reason that the British Commonwealth throughout the world just went on an Egypt craze. I mean, I think French Commonwealth did too. But in terms of trying to understand the hieroglyphics, that's been going on for actually incredibly long time. The interesting thing is, is that around the end of the fourth century AD, hieroglyphs actually began to go out of use in Egypt. Because again, particularly by the AD, you had no, it, it wasn't run by Egyptian pharaohs. Cleopatra had died long, long before that. So without any ruling royalty to actually use the hieroglyphs, or probably by this point, much in the way of priest a high priestess in religion to be using the royal hieroglyphs it just sort of fell out of use and with that the knowledge of how to read them also fell out of use and was lost and when the the slab was in england scholars immediately began to decipher it trying to use the ancient greek text to just transcribe it now by 1800 before it was officially part of English property in 1802 per the Treaty of Alexandria, it was actually in the hands of three technicians, uh, French technicians, who were trying to determine a way to actually copy the text in order to take the copies home and examine it closer. One of these men was Jean-Joseph Marcel, who was not only a printer, but also a linguist. And he's actually credited as being the very first person to correctly identify the middle script of the stele 
as being demonic or again, the people's language. He also made note that this was highly unlikely that you would see this on any mostly inscriptions because demonic was not known to appear on royal inscriptions as we've talked about. And in March of 1801, the French forces, as I mentioned before, were in battles with the British and uh, eventually it wasn't going well for the French. They retreated to the city of Alexandria along with all of the ancient artifacts they had plundered and they eventually surrendered on August 30th. And after their surrender, it was obviously dis disputed between both countries what would happen to the French literal hoard of treasures that they found. And the French literally refused to give over any other treasure stolen possessions to the British. And the British said that we will refuse to end the siege on you in Alexandria until you do surrender all the treasure because we want to take it for ourselves. I mean, sounds about right. Much, the British are known to be pretty damn greedy. All we have to do is look at the colonies of New England. What do you mean? Oh, last time I checked, it took an entire revolutionary war for them to be like, fine. Oh, Please. that's not where my brain went when you say colonies of New England. You're talking about the Boston Tea Party. I'm just talking about them being greedy in general, and I was using the colonies as an example. I would have gone to India with that one, but okay. Well, in, you have India and you have Hong Kong. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, talk about the Boxer Rebellion. Oh, for sure. But that's a whole nother episode. Oh, yeah. Don't veer too oh, yeah. far off because I'm too interested. Keep <laughs> going. Keep going. Well, obviously, you've got a standoff here. Now, British scholars Edward Daniel Clark and William Richard Hamilton agreed on the side of the English that they would go over and take a look at what the French had. And after having looked at all the treasure the, the French had accumulated, they reported back that, quote, we found much more in their possession than was represented or even imagined. So when I say the French had a horde of Egyptian artifacts, they probably really had a horde of Egyptian artifacts. Oh yeah, they took things just like the English took things during yeah. the war. That's what they did. Yeah, absolutely. They saw it as their right. Yep. Without any regard to the people who live there. Yeah, humans. So General Hutchinson, English, claimed that all the treasure was now obviously property of the crown because the French surrendered to the British. And then French scholar Etienne Geoffrey Saint-Hilaire told them no. And also specifically told the English that we would rather burn all of our discoveries and artifacts than turn them over to British hands. That's harsh. That can tell you how much the French hated the English. If that had actually happened, That'd be so sad. I don't know that it would have really ever happened. I think both sides really, not just with Rosetta Stone specifically, but I think just all the artifacts they had, I think they realized the absolute significance of it. But who knows? I don't know these particular people. Maybe their mind was, screw you. If, he can't, if I can't have it, no one will. But who knows? That wouldn't surprise me. For some people throughout history, no, but I don't know about these specific military people. I've never heard of them before. 
So Clark and Hamilton began to plead the French's case to General Hutchinson, saying, they're going to destroy this stuff. We need to get it away from them because they want they, they want to keep it and we want it and they say that they'll destroy it and we need to not do that so general Manel, who is french claimed that the stone specifically the rosetta stone was his personal private property even though he wasn't even anywhere near and well he wasn't any one of the handful of people that were around when it was originally found so he's like no this this, this thing is super significant and the british want it no it's mine now and Hutchinson, General Hutchinson, realizing the stone significance, denied Manau's claim and said, nope, this is still the property of the British now. You can't have it. It's not yours. Obviously, an agreement was originally, agreement was eventually reached between the two, obviously the Treaty of Alexandria. Now, it's not also specifically known how the stone came into the possession of the English, but there are typically two common stories. The first is Colonel Tompkins Hillgrove Turner. These guys have really interesting names when you go back to think about English names. First name is Tompkins, I love it. And he would specifically be the person to take the stone to England, but he also claimed that he seized it from General Manel. And the second one is that Edward Daniel Clark, the scholar claimed that a member of the French Institute in Cairo as well as his assistant, John Cripps and Hamilton were taken to the back streets behind General Manau's home. And this member of the Institute showed them where the general was keeping the stone, which is apparently hidden under piles of carpets along with the general's baggage. And immediately General Hutchinson was informed and the stone was taken out of Manau's possession and then put on Turner's ship to take it to England. And when it reached England, it was also immediately quote unquote gifted, shown off is maybe a better word to King George and then immediately taken over towards the British Museum. And I'll get into that in my next section on conservation ship. Continuing with the translation, Thomas Young, who is an English physicist was the first one to point out that the hieroglyphs on the top portion showed a royal name, Ptolemy in a cartouche if it's in hieroglyphics it would have been a cartouche yes correct yes, yes. now for young realizing the significance of this specifically he sent a letter in 1818 asking william banks to look at these hieroglyphs while he himself was in egypt so william banks was i guess in the english military but Young wrote a letter to him saying, hey, while you're, in, while you're in Egypt, keep a lookout for this particular cartouche. It's incredibly important. And also from, from that, we can learn to see if we can find more information about this Ptolemy. I don't know if they specifically realized there were more than one Ptolemy, but again, probably not because they hadn't deciphered ancient hieroglyphs at that point. So Young was asserting that this particular cartouche in the hieroglyphics, and if you don't know what a cartouche is, it's a name encircled, which means that it's, it's an emphasis on those particular pictographs and asserted that this was a very important name. 
And he was obviously very correct in that assertion. And we'll get into Champollion in just a second. But I mentioned he sent uh, a letter to William Banks, who, oh, sorry, he sent a letter to William Banks to look for this name while he was out. Young, looking at the hieroglyphs, also realized that not only were the names Ptolemy encircled, but also Cleopatra. And we mentioned Cleopatra the seventh. There have been several, obviously, Cleopatras. So when we think, I, we're like, you're like wondering maybe why Cleopatra was written with this Ptolemy V. There were tons of Cleopatras in the Ptolemy line. Hence, and it gets the last really one was the seventh one. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure exactly which Cleopatra, but Cleopatra was a very popular name at the time, and particularly in terms for royal sister wives. So it's not unlikely to have written Cleopatra on this. It's not the Cleopatra. And it began in 1814 that Young began his correspondence with Jean-Francois Champollion, who at the time was a teacher and who was studying Egyptology and just channel works on ancient Egypt and saw the copies of the hieroglyphs and the Greek inscriptions and began kind of working on it. And it wasn't really specifically until the early 1820s that Champollion really, he began his work on the hieroglyphs in about like 1815, give or take, but like 1814, 1815. But if you don't know what you're looking at, it's hard to really realize what it is you're looking at, particularly in a, a at least forgotten or even dead language at this point. But by the early 1820s, Champollion was able to determine that the hieroglyphs were actually the forms of sounds within the Egyptian language. And then he realized that the hieroglyphs not only recorded the names of royals, but also the names of non-royals, which made it a very important document. And he would go on to present his findings at the Academy de Inscriptions et Belletres on Friday, September 27th of 1822. And at this exact presentation, Thomas Young was also in attendance. And very, very, very soon, Champollion also made a second major breakthrough in deciphering the hieroglyphs. He realized that the alphabetic signs weren't just for foreign names, but also Egyptian names. And he combined his knowledge of Coptic, which is another writing system, and began to fully translate the hieroglyphs as completely as possible. Which still technically to this day, they're also not completely fully transcribed in terms of a language because I don't, you, I think you can, based off the linguistics, you can probably determine which symbols are which based off of what we know in terms of the translation from ancient Greek to hieroglyphs, but there's always new things changing and, and, and being learned. So I don't know that it's always gonna be completely fully realized, but that's all about the workings of the translation and the findings of the Rosetta Stone. So let's go into the Rosetta Stone and its residence at the British Museum. So because of its obvious massive significance, it was obviously immediately copied both by the French and by the English, but particularly when it was in England, 
attempts very quickly were worked on to try to preserve the stone. And first, the stone was covered in plaster and copies sent to Oxford, Inc. Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, and the Trinity College in Dublin. And then secondly, the texts were also covered in printer's ink. And then copies of that, or copies were made using that, and those were sent to various scholars who could work on deciphering the glyphs. They also decided to fill, because it's a stone slab. It's not quite granite, but it has a granite look to it. But if you've ever seen anything inscribed, it's all kind of similar colors ring about. So obviously you can see the inscriptions, but over time, like a gravestone, over time things get weathered down. And sometimes it's hard to get a full visual of what it is you're looking at. These people, so the people in, at the British Museum decided that they were going to fill in the carvings with white paint to make it stand out more so it's more easily re readable. And very many of the pictures you'll see would be the Rosetta Stone with white paint on it. This made the glyphs easier to view. And then as soon as they were done painting it, they put a layer of caruba wax, carnuba, carnuba wax, um, over it to seal it. I was just going to say carnuba. <laughs> caruba didn't sound like, sounds, makes sense, carnuba wax, yeah. As I mentioned, the stone was taken to England after the defeat of the French in 1802, and when it arrived, it was presented to King George III. <laughs> I love this little note. When the stone, as well as many of the other treasure hoards that the English were able to acquire through the Treaty of Alexandria, were taken to the British Museum, they actually had to be housed in a special temporary structure on the grounds of the museum because the floors of the museum weren't strong enough to bear the weight of all of the treasure. <laughs> to give an idea of the Rosetta Stone itself, not along with all the other treasures, Rosetta Stone alone weighs 1,700 pounds. It's over a ton, literally. Yeah. Again, it probably weighed closer to at least 3,000. Oh, and fully formed? Absolutely. Yeah. Easy, easy, easy. We'll Just, definitely have a picture and the, the, the Instagrams when this episode airs that will have a illustrated depiction of what the full thing may have looked like. Yeah, what we think it may have looked like, we obviously have zero reference. Right. The trustees of the museum very quickly made a plea or a request, if you will, to Parliament for funding to build a new gallery to house the objects. And it was officially added into the new museum in 1834. Now, originally, the stone was displayed at an angle. So that's... 90, like a 40, 45 degree angle, maybe, and set into a metal frame. What annoyed me finding this out is that they also had to, mind you, I, okay, given the stone inscription, unlike some other stele, which are sometimes carved on different sides, the Rosetta Stone is only carved on one side. The other three sides are completely blank. But given the significance of it, <sighs> 
in order to fit it. They did not make a custom metal frame for this thing. They made a metal frame and then began to shave off portions of the stone in order to fit the frame that they decided not to make a custom frame for. Okay, this doesn't sound logical to me. Fine. But museum, museums are, were not what they are today, back then. Today, we'll make custom things for it, but back then, that, that wasn't even a thought. It just irritates me. <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> it just irritates me. By 1847, so from the time it was put into from 1802 up until 1847, it sat in the metal frame whether it was on the grounds or now inside the new gallery inside the British Museum, it lay open to the public where people obviously were coming to touch it. 1847, to keep people from touching it, it was now placed in a protective cover. That's what irritates me more than anything is the touching. Just stop. <laughs> Ah. I like how we're both getting worked up over like conservation issues. We both studied archaeology. We know how this works. We know what happens. And it doesn't matter what the artifact is made out of. Human, the oil from human hands destroys things over time. It can destroy things. So stop touching stuff. <laughs> Just in the same sense that touching your face with your hands can cause breakouts, it can also destroy artifacts. Keep that in mind. I think I broke Lauren on that one. <laughs> She's done. <laughs> All right, I'll keep going. Because I don't disagree. It's no. Just, it's probably the one thing pertaining to conservation that irritates me the most. Oh, it's Everything. not even, you know what? I want to take a piece. I want to take a piece. Screw you. Stop touching shit. You know what? It's also my not just it's not just the oil on the hands. Hands are dirty. And particularly even nowadays when we have and I don't mean just since 2020, but in, in general, since nowadays, we, we definitely know more about germs and stuff. And germ theory was kind of becoming a thing in the early 1800s. But people still weren't anywhere near as clean as most people are today. We still wash our oh, at least most of us wash our hands when we use the bathroom, when we clean, when we cook food. They definitely did not do that anywhere near as frequently back then, but your fingers and your hands are also full of bacteria, which can definitely destroy stuff too. Humans are dirty. We're filthy. No matter filthy how many dirty. times you wash them, doesn't matter how many times you wash them with hot water and soap, there's still something on them. I yeah. guarantee it. I yeah, guarantee yeah. it. Oh yeah. Don't don't take things because you want to, because you want a piece of history, but also don't touch it. Just don't touch it. Leave it where it is. Don't touch it. Don't sit on it. Don't. Mm. <laughs> Before we get too deep into that topic, keep going. <laughs> I was about to, but I'll stop. <laughs> but it had nothing pertaining to archaeology. <laughs> but I'll stop. Um, so 1847, they put a protective casing around it. And then by 2004, it was put into a very specific, as a specifically made custom case and if you're not so much aware of what those are it's uv protected most most times depending what the art object is it 
can be a UV protective, shatterproof acrylic, temperature controlled setting to keep it so that it doesn't dissolve or dissipate or crack or anything like that. Very, very common museums nowadays. Now, over time, the layers of ink, residue, bacteria, and oil from the human hands began to cause a problem for conservationists for the Rosetta Stone. In 1999, literally 200 years after it was found, the stone underwent a major cleaning before it was put under display for the museum's Cracking the Codes exhibit, which was around, it came out around 2000. The layers of attempts of preservation took a lot of time to clean off. The ink was taken off using cotton wool swabs, not cotton, like the cotton and wool swabs, white spirit, acetone, purified water, and soap. The white paint was taken off using cotton swabs and purified water. Conservationists, actually, you can see this today, did leave a very, very, very small portion of the stone near the bottom left corner with the, the white paint on it and wax to show what it would have looked like prior to 1999. And to be in, uh, uh, actual interest, the stone has literally been on continuous display at the museum since 1802, save for two exceptions, World War I and 1917. The museum with obvious concerns of bombings moved the stone into a station on the Postal Tube Railway, which was 50 feet below ground, along with obviously very many other artifacts from the museum to keep them from being destroyed. And it stayed there for the next two years until World War II was kind of officially over. And then the second time it was taken to the museum in Paris to the Louvre in October of 1972 for the 150th anniversary of Champollion's letter that he gave to the Academy. And it was only there for a whole month. It, it didn't stay there, but it traveled in a very secure way and it was in Paris for one month and then came back. And today the stone is housed in room four, which is the Egyptian sculpture gallery at the, the British Museum. And in room one, there is actually a replica that you can actually touch. Go ahead, touch it. And if you want to, if, or if you can't make it to the museum to literally see it in person, you can actually see it through Google Street View, which will have a source and our, our information notes for sure. It's actually kind of cool. Kind of is an understatement. <laughs> well, it's kind of cool until you see it in person. Then you realize, oh my goodness. Oh, I know. <laughs> so... There, like I said earlier, when I was talking about the origins, there were other versions of this Memphis decree written down. The Rosetta Stone is obviously the most famous, but that's also because it's the only preserved one that is legible. So it was also written on what is known as the Nubaira Stele. I could be mispronouncing that again. Nubaira, Nubaira. This stone is actually no longer intact. This particular stele is just 
it's damaged beyond repair. It's gone, basically. Can't really read it. And it's also made out of limestone. I don't know if you know much about limestone. I can't say I know a ton, but it's not known for being great at preservation. <laughs> limestone is porous. Yeah. It gets destroyed easily. Yeah. That's why it's, I mean, you use it in foundations for stuff, but it's, it's a porous, it's like using. If you don't take care of it, it will rot away kind of. Well, it's like, it's like volcanic rock, not okay. specifically, but it, it, it sort of acts like volcanic rock and that it, it doesn't hold things very well. It's very lightweight. Yes, exactly. So putting this decree on a limestone stele meant that it was going to be destroyed at some point. And that's what happened. What's left of this particular stele is actually at the Egyptian museum. So it's, it's still in Egypt to this day. There was another stele found in Nubtaha in Elephantine, but I honestly could not find much on it. It's very little spoken about. I don't know about its preservation. I, I had so much trouble with that one at all. So it exists, just don't know much about it. And then the last one is actually at the temple of Philae. I'm aware of the temple, yeah. Well, if you're not, the Temple of Philae is located on an island in the middle of the Nile. And when UNESCO was founded, it was moved from the island it was originally built on to another island nearby because the Nile was going to flood it. And that was one of UNESCO's first projects that I know of. And if I remember correctly, the Temple of Philae is dedicated to Isis. Or it's a whole, actually, it's a whole complex. I don't know why I'm saying. I think one of them is dedicated to Isis, at least. Basically, yeah. So it was basically taken apart by UNESCO from the original island it was on and very, and put back together because when the Aswan Dam was being built, it was definitely going to flood the temple and destroy it. So at the Temple of Philae, written on one of the walls, the Memphis Decree is actually carved into the temple, one of the temple's walls. Oh, really? It was. It was there. However, I mean, it's the Temple of Philae. So if you look at ancient Egyptian temples, things are erased, things are changed, things are written over all the time, things are added to temples. Well, this particular wall was destroyed. They removed bits of the Memphis Decree and wrote over it something else. So we, once again, do not have a full version of the Memphis Decree. So you either wrote over it or it ended up being damaged. So you get like little bits here and there. So that's also why the Rosetta Stone is extremely important to us because it gives us all three languages. It helped us to translate hieroglyphics. 
And it's the most complete record of the Memphis decree of Ptolemy V Epiphanes that we have found. And I can't say there's anything else because unfortunately these were really hard to research for some reason, because I think the Rosetta Stone is so famous and it has all the translation that we need. Unless we find a full translation of the Memphis decree, I think all the others are just overshadowed by the red Rosetta Stone. I agree. Yeah. Um, there, I know I mentioned it, but I don't think I really went into it that there, even prior to 1799, when the Rosetta Stone was found, people over the centuries had been trying to decipher hieroglyphs, particularly since the fourth century onward. I've got this little bit from Wikipedia, if you want me to take a quick read through it. No, no, I don't. No, I'm kidding. Of course. <laughs> so as I mentioned, uh, around the fourth century, that hieroglyphs began to kind of die out. And that was, again, because they didn't have any royalty left anymore by this point. It had been quite some time since they had a, a ruling Egyptian quote-unquote pharaoh. Um, also, around this time, Christianity was just kind of taking hold everywhere. So to not read and write and learn latin and but to read the pagan languages was unchristian so the use of it died out the use of writing it died out the use of being able to read it died out as people were converted into christianity the last known speaking of fly the last known according to wikipedia so take it as you will the last known inscription in hieroglyphs is dated to August 24th, 394, which is found at Philae, and it is known specifically as the Graffito de Esmet Akom. And the last demotic text known to have been written was also from Philae and written in 452 AD. Now, obviously, hieroglyphs are still found throughout all the Egyptian lands, so people know it exists, and it's certainly an unusual pictorial language but in terms of ancient greek and roman alphabets it's certainly weird if you will and, and it's like classic text versus pagan text in a certain sense if you will in the fifth century so about a hundred years later or so after the disappearance of the use of hieroglyphs Apparently, there was a priest named Horapolo uh, who wrote a book called Hieroglyphica and actually explained about 200 of these glyphs, but it's not believed that it was kind of like Galen with his medicines. It was believed to be actual factual for some time, but over time we realize it's not. <laughs> And eventually people would continue to work on it, continue to work on trying to understand the hieroglyphs and even demotic text and to understand the writings that people would find on temples and such. Decipherance were not just made by ancient Greek and Roman scholars. They were also made by Arab historians and those throughout medieval Egypt at the time, particularly under Ottoman rule. You have the ninth and 10th centuries right before the Crusades. And 
Coptic was actually a language used in Egypt at this time because it was the contemporary language of Egypt and it was Coptic was a language that was used by the priests still in that area practicing non-Christianity. So they were trying to compare it to hieroglyphs, but obviously it doesn't quite work that way. I'm not too particularly familiar with Coptic in terms of studying any of it, but it's kind of like to me, my understanding of Coptic to hieroglyphs is ancient Greek to modern Greek. They're not very similar. You can't know one and read the other one. It just doesn't work. It's also like going to early Middle Ages English to modern English. You can get maybe a very, very basic general sense, but it just doesn't always work out very well. But I may be wrong, and if someone knows better than me, feel free to correct, but that was my understanding of it. And people would continue and continue and continue to try to take what is known of Coptic and known of the history that was still said about ancient Egypt and use it to decipher the hieroglyphs, all not working out. And there was even a very notable scholar named Pierius Valerianus. Valerianus? And the 1600s and of course our friend who constantly keeps popping up in a lot of these episodes which we absolutely just need to do a, a deep dive on athanasius hersher because he's apparently literally a renaissance man in the 17th century and they even worked on it and kersher who if you go back to our what's his face John D. I'm like, <laughs> like, which one are you going with? We've had so many episodes at this point. Your cursor pops up. He pops up in next week's episode or last week's episode during the weird history too. Oh yeah. <laughs> Stop. With, the, with the, the medieval music. Um, he just pops up everywhere. But if you go back to our John D episode, Kersher pops up as well because Kersher was also, if you go back to the, I think he pops up in that one. And um, actually, I, he was, he pops up in the Codex Gigas as well. Oh, right? yeah. Because he, he was kind of into cryptography and deciphering stuff. So the guy really liked languages and he liked music language. He liked a written language. He liked mysterious languages. The guy was a cryptographer for the most part. Even he couldn't figure it out. But mind you, he couldn't figure out the Codex Gigas either. Mind you, nobody has figured out the Codex Gigas either. The Codex Geiger Codex is just oh and the Geiger yeah whatever it's called <laughs> yeah and <laughs> well it's both it's just one you want to call it. version of it but the the Geiger Codex is just a hot mess in my opinion <laughs> it it is it, it of, very much is yeah of like religion and translation and mystery and a little bit of horror thrown in some botany and human anatomy perhaps women bathing in a weird pool of slime oh, yeah i don't get it <laughs> zodiac and you know planets and it's like what is going on with this book i, I i'm not sure i want to know <laughs> but i mean Too complicated for me yes but kersher even tried to do it and didn't have good results it literally people have been trying since the fourth century a.d up until 1799 well we'll call it 1800 just to be fair just to round up because they found it in 1799 and it really didn't have scholars were immediately trying to work on it but it kind of really wasn't until champollion 
really took a deep dive into it into about 1814, 1815, that we really made major headway. So we're talking what, 14, 1500 years not knowing what hieroglyphs were and how to read them? Basically. That's a long time to try to resurrect a dead language. I mean, it's amazing how long people studied it and were unable to figure it out. Well, I not knowing... I mean, as, in, as, as somebody who likes linguistics, but who does not study hieroglyphics, or at least not Egyptian hieroglyphics, I know that they're, they're by sound because it's pictographic. So each symbol is a sound, and it's mm-hmm. not a very efficient language to be at that. Pictorial, pictographic languages are not efficient. What? No. No, not at all. Are you sure... You sure i'm i think they're extremely efficient they're fun but they're not efficient oh you you can sit there for hours and just go what <laughs> sometimes i wonder how they even came up with it because it's just not efficient but it's everywhere at least in egypt um but Kersher even came up with the name for it. So we call it the Rosetta Stone because it was found in the city of what was then called Rosetta, which is now the modern city of Rashid. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, I have, to, I have to mention this. So it was originally found by a man named Pierre-Francois Bouchard. And the stone quickly took on the name Le Pierre de Rosetta. And a, immediately like why are they calling the stone after pierre francois bouchard then i realized oh wait pierre in french is also the word for stone so a guy named stone france or or french stone essentially (laughs) found the rosetta stone if you want to be very silly with it basically i'm 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 very very silly but kirshner that's normal for us kirscher athenians kirscher uh, eventually would call the hieroglyphs the riddle of the sphinx which is a really nifty name for trying to figure out demonic and hieroglyphic texts well i mean sphinxes and lore are known for their riddles true and i don't know if that's actually where he got it from i'm just using that as a possibility my only thought in terms of well, the Sphinx was part of Egyptian culture. The Sphinx was kind of it was part. In- it was it was it was part of a, a. I mean, the Sphinx is used in ancient Greek culture to a certain degree. Yeah, you know, it's just kind of everywhere in that Mediterranean region. I think even there might have been a oh, like Griffin. It's a Griffin. So I think there's even Griffins maybe in some Indo-European cultures as well. I'm not quite sure. It sounds vaguely familiar, but. Riddle of the Sphinx is pretty cool. Now, interestingly enough, the literal Sphinx would not be also uncovered until Napoleon's campaign through Egypt either. Yeah, of course. But um, unfortunately, they weren't able to pick up the Sphinx and move it. Oh, really? (laughs) Is that why it still lays down its life in Egypt? 
It's one of the reasons. But that's um, all I have on my end for Leroy's at a stone and hieroglyphics. And the same. So let us end this episode. I'm sure it's gone on long enough for our listeners. <laughs> no, never. No, no, I'm sure pretty sure this one also comes out to about an hour and a half, but we figured it would. I mean, when do our episodes ever really get cut short? Yeah. Let's 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 be honest. But that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all.